Hey, science nerds, welcome back to another episode of Versa Podcast, where we explore the research and various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the new generation of science leaders it's fostering. I'll be your host, Bonnie, and I'm joined with my co-host, Denny. Welcome to Mercer Podcasts. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, we're joined today by Dr. Joshua Koenig, a sessional instructor and research scientist at McMaster with an extensive background in adaptive immunology. Dr. Koenig completed his Bachelor's of Health Sciences in the Child Health, Health Specialization at McMaster in 2015 and has recently received his PhD in Immunology of Food Allergy, focusing on the origin and roles of high-affinity immunoglobin E antibodies under the supervision of Dr. Jordana. It's truly really a privilege to have you here today, Dr. Koenig, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks. You guys uh, did some research. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we did. So, Dr. Koenig, would you be able to tell our listeners a bit about your academic journey, your field of research, and how you ended up at the Jordana Wasserman Lab at McMaster University? Yeah, that's uh, you're asking me to kind of gloss over the last, uh, I suppose, almost 10 years of my life, but uh, I can, I guess I can try. Um, so, I uh, was in the Bachelor of Health Science program here at Mac. Um, I you know, I'm actually originally from Toronto. I, I kind of came to the BHC program on a lark, actually. I didn't exactly know what I was getting myself into, to be honest with you. Um, and it ended up being probably one of the greatest experiences of my life because, um, you know, I, I really connected with the learning style of the program. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, I suppose I kind of have a, a knack for the experimental because when I was in my first year, there were these rumblings, you know, there's going to be a new specialization in the BHC program. It's going to be called child health. It's weird. Like that's, you know, they don't even know what's going to happen yet. So I was like, cool, sign me up. More inquiry, more child health, more Margaret Secord. I am, I, I'm in. Um, and so I signed up and, uh, you know, child health specializations changed quite a bit. I actually teach there now. Um, but uh, then, you know, they kind of were like, you make your own course outline, design your own program, like let's build something from the ground up. And it was really interesting because I think that, uh, you know, around the same time I was taking anatomy and um, uh, somebody who's actually a friend of mine now, Dr. Kale Zavitz, gave a couple lectures on the immune system. And I was like, that's cool. That's some cool stuff. Like, I, I wonder if there's more immune system courses. And uh, so then I, I took 3 which is a course that I teach now and that you're both in. Um, and the course has actually not changed all that much, which is something I'm looking to change. But, you know, I was in that course and I was like, this is the coolest thing that I have ever heard in my life. Like, we're talking about cells that are fighting off bad guys. Like, you know, at that time, cells at work, the anime didn't exist. So I was like, this is like The Avengers, which is a movie that came out when I was in my undergrad. I'm like, this is the coolest so, um, you know, then it came time for my fourth year thesis. And I was like, well, I love the immune system. I really want to do a thesis, but I have a caveat. I'm in the child health specialization. So I have to do a thesis in child health, but I want to do it in immunology as well. So I was like, hmm, what can I spin? And, you know, here there's a lot of cancer immunology. There's a lot of other things. And, you know, I, I couldn't really make that work. And then, you know, jo Dr. Jordana's lab, which, uh, had, you know, is about 
allergies, but, you know, and at the time, uh, you know, actually I think still much of Dr. Jordana or Manal as I call him, uh, much of his website was about asthma. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to work in asthma. That's a childhood thing. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I basically begged him. I was basically like, please, you have to let me in. He actually triaged my first two emails. He didn't even answer me. Um, and then I, uh, went into uh, his office and I, well, actually it was the immunology offices that I'm in now. And um, I went up to, at the time there were office admins and each you know PI or small individual packets of PIs would have uh, a secretary. And I went to the secretary whose name was Marie Bailey and I was just like, so I hear that you're the person who runs things around here. Can you get me a meeting with Dr. Jordana? And she laughed and got up and walked down and then said, Manal, there's a cheeky boy here who wants to talk to you. And Manal just said, fine. And then I, I actually interviewed him on the spot and, you know, one thing led to another. I did my undergraduate thesis in his lab and, and I just loved it. Like, I, I just remember being like, this is the coolest thing in the world. Like, I'm, I'm doing experiments. This is awesome. I get to know things for some time that no one else in the world knows. And then, you know, I wasn't, I think in November of my fourth year, I was like, can I do a master's degree here? He was like, yeah, sure. And so then I signed and did my master's. Uh, and then it was like three or four months into my master's. And I was like, do you think I could do a PhD? And he was just like, yes, of course, do a PhD. So then, you know, I, you know, dot, 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 six years later, graduate and, uh, you know, kind of here I am. Well, that's, that's a journey. It's good. I think with, um, it's good with, with the rejection or like the triage of the email that you didn't get discouraged. Cause I feel like a lot of undergraduate students do. I know that I, have had profs even promise research once their ethics are um, approved. And then I never hear from them again, ever again, um, mm. after sending emails. So that's, that's uh, it's good that you didn't get discouraged and you went into the lab and you were like, no, now, <laughs> right well, now. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I, I, I only had the one option. So it was either follow my dreams or it wasn't really going to happen, or at least that's how I saw it then. It, it, I probably could have made something else fly, but uh, I was like, this is the only option for me. So I'm going to hound him. And, you know, the thing I think that I really had going for me is that I knew pretty early on that I really wasn't interested in going to medical school at all. And, you know, something that we have a hard time with in, you know, many of these health science fields is uh, recruiting people who actually want to stay and do graduate work because many want to go to medical school or do other things. And, you know, it's a lot of time and effort and, and, and heartache and, and work that we put into students for them to then go and, you know, uh, leave and go to other labs or go to medical school and not use those skills ever again. So I think being, in walking in there and being like, hey, I don't want to go to medical school. I'm really thinking immunology is for me. I might have inadvertently, I, I didn't do this on purpose. I may have just clicked the right words or he went, oh, really? And then, you know, it was more yeah. interesting. You were, you were persuasive. That's, oh, that's great. Well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked for a master's and a PhD. Uh, so uh, we wanted to ask, we've noticed an emphasis on your work regarding TH2 immunity and food allergies. What mm -hmm. about these topics made you kind of gravitate towards them? That, that's a good question. I mean, aside from the having to uh, elements, I actually wanted to as well. Um, you know, early on, I, I viewed TH2 immunity and the intricacies that come with that as, as kind of a weird mistake of the immune system. Like, you know, 
you're not supposed to have these things happen. 90% of people don't have these things happen, but some do. And that's strange and weird. And, and our immune system is supposed to protect us. What the, what, what the heck? What's wrong? What's up with that? Right. Um, and I, you know, I think that that was kind of the level of, of my knowledge and interest in the topic at the time. But then what really happened was, you know, throughout my master's and PhD studies, I just absolutely fell in love with adaptive immunity. Like, um, I think adaptive immune cells are probably the most interesting cells in the body. I think they do some of the wildest things. They can be so many different things and change and respond in different ways. And um, there's such an elegance to how all of it works and, and truthfully, how little we still know about it. We're still trying to figure out so much that, um, you know, the adaptive immune system is something that we study a lot as it pertains to viruses and as it pertains to immunizations and things like that. But there's really not a huge field of people who study type two immunity. So there's so many questions. There's so much still left to know. And, and you know, because no one studies it, it, it's difficult to study. We have to make a lot of tools, but there's so much beauty and elegance to uncover still in there. And I think to me, all of the question marks and all of the things that we may potentially understand that could result in therapies or diagnostic tools or things like that, you know, those pieces aren't as interesting to me, but the, the, the unknown of it all and wanting to solve those questions is, it's, it, it, it's amazing. It's probably my favorite part of the job. It's maybe rivaled by hanging out with students. Um, so a large part of your work has been studying food allergies and Ig production. Would you mind giving us a quick overview of the THG response for our listeners in the context of how food allergies develop? Yeah, um, absolutely. I'd love to. I've been training for basically 10 years to do this. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so typically, there's actually some really beautiful studies that were done like way back as early as 1911, where, um, some researchers had found that if you feed people or feed guinea pigs like corn, that you couldn't make those guinea pigs what they called then sensitized or anaphylactic to corn. And what that is, is basically a, a very powerful tolerance mechanism that our body has. We call it oral tolerance. So, you know, when you're young, you put everything in your mouth and your immune system wants you to do that. It's actually you know, a way that you get a ton of exposures. And when you're eating foods, your immune system by and large just shuts off all the adaptive immune cells that respond to those foods. Uh, it either shuts them off or it makes an immune response that is healthy. Now, we don't know exactly why, but in a small subset of people, allergic people, when they eat those foods, rather than having that tolerant and, and, and healthy response, they drive this type two immune response, this TH2 response that we're talking about. And you know, we don't know exactly what drives it, but what we do know is that um, there's a series of cells that are engaged with this. We have cells called antigen presenting cells like dendritic cells and macrophages are, are two. And we know that these cells will take the food proteins and run off to the lymph nodes and then interface with our adaptive immune system, which is our T and B cells. And when they do that, there is an exchange of signals that basically takes those T cells and rather than making them a, you know, regulatory, a tolerant, a healthy phenotype, it turns them into TH2 cells. And those cells then produce certain cytokines 
which are signaling molecules the immune system uses that are characteristic of this, you know, type two, TH2 immune response. These are, um, these cytokines drive a bunch of different things that happen. But one of the most important ones is then that T cell will talk to a B cell and it will tell that B cell to become an IgE expressing B cell. IgE is a type of antibody. That B cell will then produce IgE antibodies. And that is the problem. That right there is the issue that we're trying to solve. Because what those IgE antibodies do is they go and they coat all of our tissues and they stay stuck to these cells that have these toxic preformed granules. We, there's a few different types, but the most common is one called a mast cell, which if you know anybody here is uh, from the BHC program, then Dr. Rangachari uh, loves mast cells and histamine. And he's the first year um, biology or first year cell biology instructor uh, for um, uh, BHC students. And um, basically what happens is now that you have these mast cells that are coated with IgE antibodies, when they see the, the allergen again, say it's a peanut, that binds to those antibodies and it causes the immediate release of all these toxic granule contents like histamine, as an example. And that causes all the things that you associate with an allergic disease. It causes your skin to go red and to become itchy. It causes you to, you know, throw up or, you know, have a drop in core, or well, not core body temperature, that's more mice, but have a, a drop in your blood pressure. And, uh, you know, that can result in death. So it's those immediate reactions that people have to foods that make food allergy so unique. It's, you know, you can eat the food and just minutes later have a terrible reaction. And the reason is because of these IgE antibodies. So it's purely really an adaptive immune issue that we're trying to address. Um, and, and, you know, what, what we're trying to do in the lab is understand the ways that the IgE antibodies are made and the ways that they are maintained in long periods of time to try and interrupt that. So no more IgE, we're hoping no more food allergy. I don't know if that was too confusing or if that made sense. No, that made, that made complete sense. You explained that really well because uh, okay. reading the research is one thing, but getting it explained to you like that is, is uh, way more straightforward uh, because the research is very specific. Uh, mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask, uh, because you mentioned B and T cells, um, you, you also mentioned it in a paper this year where you discussed kind of the mechanisms by which memory B and, D, B and T cells are activated and yeah. uh, they integrate knowledge from human systems. So what are some potential commercial uses or innovations for allergen specific memory response B and T cells? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So um, there are some commercial slash medical things that already exist that utilize these things. And there's some that we're trying to figure out. So as an example, if someone is gonna be diagnosed as allergic, what you'll typically do is go into the clinic, they'll do a blood draw, and then they'll look for your levels of allergen specific IgE. And if you have allergen specific IgE above a certain threshold, which is a very low threshold because healthy people don't really have it, um, you know, you're considered allergic. So, you know, really that among, you know, your clinical history and something called a skin prick test or your primary diagnostic tools. But what, you know, we've been playing with in the lab, you know, this is work from a PhD student in Dr. Jordana lab um, uh, named Kelly Bruton is using uh, tools to interrupt 
and try to reprogram that memory response. So what they've been playing with is blocking IL-4 signaling. IL-4 is one of those cytokines I was talking about. It's a TH2 cytokine. And um, in one of our more recent papers uh, from the lab, they found that IL-4 is critically required for memory responses. So we're, you know, the thought process is uh, if you block IL-4, then you won't have that memory IgE production. And if you don't have memory IgE production, you limit all that, eventually your IgE will go away. And then once your IgE is gone, hopefully you're not allergic anymore. And you know we're trying to understand now whether or not trying to activate the immune system a whole bunch in a way that doesn't result in IgE, if that actually changes the immune system, reprograms it to determine basically um, whether or not we can take allergic people and make them non-allergic. We also have other um, uh, projects in the lab. There's one that uh, I'm a lead on and uh, with uh, Emily Kujushko, who is a master's student in the lab, where um, you know, we, think that under, we think we have found some uh, T cell populations that appear very early in uh, the development of an allergic response that we're thinking may be a better tool to like, you know, predict if someone's gonna become allergic. So, you know, better predictive markers is another thing we really need in food allergy. We don't really know who's gonna become allergic and it's a big problem. So there's a lot, there's a lot of things that, that, that are in development in the pipeline. We were wondering what the main method of modeling food allergy in your, is in your research and how that has developed technological applications as your knowledge of the role of innate cells and foods allergy has advanced. So when you say modeling, I imagine you mean like the, the, the systems that we use to study the disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, we actually have um, a, a number of different models. If you ask uh, me or, or, or Dr. Jordana, we would say that we're pretty eclectic with the use of models. We don't you know, stick to a single way of studying these things and then say, you know, this is the exact way to study it. We, we more believe and we wrote about this in a recent paper that it's you know kind of a collection of different models and studying those different models together that gives us an understanding of how this disease works. So we use primarily mouse models and um, human models by which I mean, we uh, use in vitro culture systems to replicate memory responses from the peripheral blood of humans. So, you know, each of these have their own pros and cons. I mean, mice are mice, they're not humans. That's a pretty big con. And, and we're very well aware of that being a con, but a lot of the stuff that we're studying is evolutionarily quite conserved. So we're not too concerned about, um, you know, things not necessarily crossing over between. Um, within our mouse models, we actually have a, like a number of different ways to make mice allergic. You can feed mice that have never seen an allergen before, um, you know, uh, some, the allergen and an adjuvant called cholera toxin, which is basically drives a TH2 response. It's an adjuvant that's very good at making TH2 responses. Adjuvants are stuff you add to make an immune response, basically. Immunologists like fancy words, I guess. Um, we also have ways to sensitize mice through their skin. So we'll um, uh, you know, disrupt the, uh, the skin of the mice and then put the antigen alone onto the disrupted skin and those mice will become allergic over time. Um, and then, you know, when, when you're talking about the human side, um, 
we were actually the first to publish a, a novel culture system that actually replicates a memory IgE response. So um, this is actually also worked by uh, Kelly Bruton, um, where uh, they had cultured um, PBMCs with the allergen and actually, you know, had figured out the permutations to make a sec, like an ant, like a memory response that results in IgE antibodies. And it was through that they were able to determine that IL-4 was required for that secondary IgE response. Okay, wow, that's very interesting. So in regards to, um, in regards to the modeling as well, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, kind of the mechanisms of introducing perturbations of tissue homeostasis along with an allergen, mm -hmm. which will result in uh, a phenotype that reflects allergic responses in humans. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that one? Yeah. So, so, yeah. You guys, you guys really done your research because you you've, you've read our papers. Um, it's it's always interesting to to write things and then hear them said back to me. That 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 that, that it's interesting. It makes me laugh. Um, so, the 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 issue of perturbations of of tissue homeostasis is a. Uh, an interesting idea. So, so let's break that down. What we mean by a perturbation is basically something that interrupts whatever you know is supposed to normally happen, which is homeostasis. And allergic diseases in general really are tissue-based diseases. They're not, you know, they're diseases that come from you know our skin or our intestines or other places like that. So. You know, now it's probably a pretty fun time to tell you that uh, the immune response that we have against foods is the same one that we use to control parasites. And that's very weird. Um, you know, parasites are these big multicellular pathogens like hookworms and other really yucky things that I don't want to think about. Um, and what those pathogens, those parasites by and large do is bore into your tissues in some way. So you know, there's one worm called Nipostrongolus brasiliensis that what it does is it basically hooks into your like lung tissue and goes into your lung and steals the resources there, then goes to your intestine and hooks into your intestine and burrows in there. And what your tissues do in response to these yucky perturbations is they know that they've been damaged. And so they secrete these danger molecules that tell the immune system around like, so in case you haven't noticed, here's a big worm. And then your immune system goes, oh, you're right. There is a giant worm right here. That's scary. And, you know, you could raise a TH2 response, a type 2 response, very healthily against that worm, such that it'll help you expel the worm and push the worm out of your tissues. When you think about things like cholera toxin, which are a TH2 adjuvant, Cholera toxin will bind to you know, many of your different tissues and cause things like problems, like releasing your fluids and all kinds of other things. It messes with your tissues. Another thing we make you know, pretty uh, drastic um, TH2 responses against are venoms. So bee sting venoms or you know, other poisons, other toxins like that, we make big IgE responses against. And one of the prevailing schools of thought is, um, you know, these mast cells that you have in your tissues, when they degranulate, they can restrict things into one place. So it can restrict a, a toxin or a poison into one area for the immune system to deal with. It can restrict a 
you know, big yucky worm from burrowing further into your tissues and help push that stuff out. The problem is that immune response works so well, so well when it's at one tissue. When that immune response is everywhere, when that immune response is in all your tissues, because you have IgE everywhere, you've eaten a food, the food's in your bloodstream, it's going everywhere. Now you have all the problems that come with allergies. So if you just had, you know, a little issue with your skin, yeah, I mean, you have worms or whatever that's happening there, you know, it's itchy, it sucks, it gets expelled, and then it's better. Everywhere, allergic disease, we don't love that. So um, the issue of understanding tissue perturbations is basically a collective framework that we put together or, and others as well have put together about kind of the evolutionary origin of these IgE responses and then where things are going wrong that we're targeting foods with these IgE responses. So, you know, if we're trying to understand in different places how those tissue perturbations are driving adaptive immunity to make IgE. And what are the tissue perturbations that happen in humans that cause food allergy, for example? We're also wondering when it comes to the application of technologies, um, when it expands to animal research, what concepts can be explored in animal research that is not explored in human samples? Oh, I mean, that's a great, that's a great, that's a fantastic question. Um, and it's something that we worry about constantly. Um, <laughs> why? Because, you know, I told you before about an in vitro culture platform system, right? Which exclusively uses peripheral blood, AKA not the tissue stuff. I, you know, last I checked, it's not particularly ethical to go and steal organs from people to study. So we, we have to find ways to study these things that don't involve such heinous crimes against humanity uh, as if we're, you know, body snatchers and from the 1800s trying to study anatomy. Um, you know, th these, are, these are issues of serious concern. We, there's really only one good uh, paper from uh, a group um, from California. The, the lead author is uh, Scott Boyd, um, who, who's a really nice guy who, who I've met a few times, uh, where they were actually able to biopsy the um, gastrointestinal tissue of allergic people. It's the only one paper that I've ever seen that's done something like that. And that was only published two years ago or three years ago or something like that. So, um, you know, we're just now starting to get to a place where we're, we can, you know, get some ethics to try and pursue some of this, understand what's happening there. Um, but really that's why we need to use mouse models and technologies like that. Because if I wanna understand how, you know, what immune cells are doing in our small intestine, you know, I need my small intestine, uh, so I can't just give mine to research. Um, and it's hard to get small intestinal samples, so we use mice to do that. Um, and, and, you know, this is an issue of, of constant concern that we're thinking about. We're trying to explore ways. It's a, a big push that I'm driving in the lab, uh, you know, as I move on to a larger role in, uh, here at Mac and, and in our lab of trying to use, you know, really powerful imaging tools, microscopy tools, so that anytime we can get a sample, um, you know, a tissue sample, that we can get the most out of that sample to understand the cells that are there, the localization, the interactions that they're doing. But really, that's why we need animal models. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, I was wondering about that because it was mentioned in one of your papers with Dr. Giordano. So it was 
is very interesting to uh to read about and uh it's probably yeah body snatchers in the 1800s that's probably uh yeah it's gonna be the quote from this podcast and that's gonna be a little (laughs) it definitely will yeah it's it's reflective of the conversation you know it'll drive students in but it's clickbait um, it's clickbait like your videos (laughs) yes uh so we wanted to kind of uh turn it around to um, on a more global scale, what are the uh, economic and health concerns of food allergies? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's a, um, it's definitely a big economic impact. Um, you know, so, so we don't have great understanding from many countries. You know, it's hard to estimate these things. We don't have this for Canada, but in the United States, Every year, food allergy costs around $21 billion with a B. And that's from people going to clinic, that's from medications, that's from all kinds of other things. Um, There's a big burden of this. You know, every single time you have an accidental exposure, you're supposed to give yourself an EpiPen and then go to the hospital. And then you have to use all the resources of going to the hospital, which is many, right? Um, On a global scale, you know, something that's not going for us in terms of allergy research or food allergy research is it's not a particularly lethal disease. So most people by and large can avoid the food well enough that they're not gonna have a severe life-threatening reaction, but it happens. You know, there's hundreds of cases every single year across the United States and Canada, and there's probably more if you look in a global context. But the thing that really is that, that we're starting to understand better now um, as we gain the words for this is that it's a serious quality of life and you know mental health impact. There's a lot of anxiety around, you know, if I go out for dinner with my friends, is that the last meal I'll ever eat? You know, um, some people with multiple allergies have to, you know, extensively sit with chefs to understand, okay, so can you make it without this list of things here? You know, um, it, it, it's, it, it, also drives expense on an individual perspective for buying allergen-free foods, which are not always easy depending on what you're allergic to. Many foods have cross-contaminants or may contain warnings. It, 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 there's a really, it's really quite beautiful. There's a very strong community of food, uh, food allergic patients and food allergic individuals um, who really band together to kind of tackle justice. It's a loud population. It's not a small population. It's 10% of people. It's a loud population of people who are looking for improvements in their quality of life. And I think it's really important that, you know, we can pursue this. And I think, you know, there are many great community organizations like Food Allergy Canada and um, CAAIF, the Canadian Allergy, Asthma and Immunology Foundation that are, you know, doing incredible work engaging with communities and helping allergic Canadians. And uh, there are many communities worldwide that are doing that. So, you know, it's really important from a global health perspective, Um, but it doesn't have the same, you know, spark as, you know, COVID-19 caused X million deaths or, you know, uh, cancer causes X million deaths in people. So it's, it's, it's not, what you're asking is, is a hard issue that we have to fight against a lot, really. Yeah, that's that's a really tough topic to talk about sometimes. I, I can see how it could be frustrating. What are some knowledge gaps you think in understanding the immune memory and food allergies that may prevent the development of therapeutic intervention? 
oh, so many things, so many things. We don't know anything about it. That's the answer, everything. Um, how it works, period. Um, you know, so <laughs> what we know is that the memory of IgE responses is held probably within, primarily within the memory B cell compartment. But some stuff that we found like within the last 10 years, there's no such thing as an IgE memory B cell. So those cells aren't making their own memory. There's other cells, other isotypes, IgG memory B cells and IgM memory B cells that have to become IgE expressing cells in a secondary response. And they're not allowed to do that on their own. We've also learned recently that they need help from T cells. And really beyond that, with knowing that IL-4 is involved, we virtually have no concept of, of what is happening. We don't know where this is happening. We don't know if this is primarily happening in our intestines or in our lymphoid organs. We don't know any other molecules that are really involved in this. We don't know what types of T cells are doing it. We don't know what types of memory B cells are doing it. We don't know if there are multiple types of memory B cells. We just know that there's such a thing as memory B cells that are IgG1 expressing that probably become IgE expressing in a memory response. Um, we don't know if those memory cells are intrinsically programmed to do that or if other cells are telling them to. We don't know if those cells require other supports outside of T cells. We, you know, outside of a very limited number of experiments, we just don't know how any of this stuff works. And, you know, it's, it's, it's so much so that, um, you know, I, I haven't really gone into this, but the thing that comes before a memory cell is a naive B cell. And for example, in mice, there actually are no markers really to distinguish between a naive B cell and a memory B cell. So the only way that we know that they are memory B cells really is that they've changed their isotype away from IgM, which is the base isotype, to another one like IgG. Outside of that, it's all the same markers. So, you know, we need better characterization of the memory B cells to understand what the heck these things are, how diverse these populations are, and are there targets that we can get from that? We need to see using microscopy tools, like, you know, what we're trying to develop in, in our lab, what interactions are happening? Where are those memory B cells getting their signals? Where are they then going? There, there's just so much that we don't know. Um, and when you ask, how does that actually help us? If we don't know anything, we don't know what to target. So, you know, we don't know what cytokines are involved. We don't know what receptors to block. We don't know what cells we need to kill. We don't even know if there's a specific kind of memory B cell that we need to kill. So, you know, there, there, there's, there's so, so much. It's, it's a right field, really, to, to go and, and, and study and learn. So for any uh, future immunologists listening, they have yeah. plenty of topics to explore, plenty of hey, uh, fields. We're looking for graduate students. So if there's anybody here who, uh, you know, wants to do uh, specifically do graduate school, send, send me an email. Everyone listening, you should. <laughs> you should send them an email. Unfortunately, you know, we, we've just kind of finished our hiring cycle for undergraduate students, so I don't know how many undergrads we're going to be able to get, unfortunately, but we're really looking for graduate students right now. Yeah, it's, it's good to know, especially for third and fourth year undergraduate students, that's always an option after finishing undergrad as well. Yeah. Um, so what, uh, in regards to all of the knowledge gaps, uh, what research directions and goals are you implementing in your future TH2 immunity and food allergy research? Yeah, that, um, I, so there's some that I can say, and then there's others that I can't, um, because of a number of different reasons. Top secret. Um, 
Yeah, top secret. No, I mean, you know, our our lab and actually, some, I can't believe I never spoke about this until now, but there's a new institute that's being developed at the university that's actually been made, which is the Schroeder Allergy and Immunology Research Institute. And, um, you know, that is, the, you know, it came from a $10 million gift from Walter and Maria Schroeder Foundation, which uh, has, you know, set this institute and is, you know, really driving us into do a lot of very novel discovery moving into the future. So, you know, we're really excited by that. And, you know, this, our institute collaborates a lot with industry. And so we have um, collaborations with industry partners that we can't really talk freely about because we're under NDA and other things. You know, I can tell you uh, a few things that, you know, we kind of are trying to pursue right now. Um, we had spoken a little bit about the concept of the programming immune system. So that's one idea that's, that's being pursued. So can we change things so that, you know, allergy isn't favored? But I'm not really gonna talk about the specifics because first off, it's not my project to talk about. And secondly, um, it's uh, something that, um, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly what details are, are worth sharing. Um, I know that, uh, you know, a story that I have pursued um, that is very near completion, uh, and actually we've talked about this publicly a few times, um, is we talked about these memory B cells. And one thing we wanted to know was, uh, well, one, one observation that has been made is that the majority of your memory IgE production, your secondary antibodies, um, comes from a population of IgG1 expressing memory B cells. And so something that, you know, is a huge focus of my PhD uh, was trying to understand whether going from G1 to E was important for anything. And what it turns out is it's actually really not important for very much. If you have IgM memory B cells, they can do the same things. But what we've come to understand um, is that these IgG1 memory B cells have certain modifications that make them really, really competitive. So they can outcompete other cells and that results in them becoming these secondary IgE responders. So it's pretty fundamental of a thing for us to know because we, you know, the kind of the prevailing notion was, well, you know, you need an IgG memory B cell to hold IgE memory. And what we're finding is that's not true. There's also populations of IgM memory B cells that you need to target in food allergy or else you're not gonna cure the disease if you only go after the IgG memory B cells. So, uh, you know, th that, that's been a, a, a labor of love for the last five years or something like that. Um, you know, other things that we're doing, uh, you know, we're trying to understand some immunotherapies and, and the impact those immunotherapies have. Um, we are, you know, as I said, a, bit, a big push in our lab is to, um, you know, use really advanced imaging strategies to try and understand cell localization and cellular interaction. So, uh, you know, there's two major technologies that we, we've been able to, to pick up in our lab um, fairly quickly, actually only within a year, which one is, uh, you know, we've gone from a lab that has never taken an image before to one that now extensively uh, does imaging work. So one thing that we can do is we can actually image through a whole lymph node. So if we had like, you know, Iron Man and you know how like Iron Man will be like, and he'll be like, and doing that thing with his like weird models and stuff like that. We can do that. I've done that. It's it, like not in a hologram. I kind of wish, but we have it on a screen where you can like go through and like stop midway through a tissue and see everything that's happening. You can rotate around that tissue and we can put in different markers in there. So we could, you know, for example, something we've done 
is we've highlighted the vasculature throughout a lymph node. And what you see are these beautiful branches that go throughout the lymph node. These are called arborizations of the branches of the vessels going like this around each other and, and you know, it, like basically providing nutrients in different parts of this vessel. Um, and, you know, this is a really, it's a really cutting edge technique. You know, it's, it's only something that has been really pursued in the last few years, but we've been able to, you know, fully visualize like B cell and T cell zones and arborization of lymph uh, lymphatic vessels and things inside one lymph node. And the idea there is to then, uh, you know, tag our interesting lymph nodes and our interesting cells or memory cells and understand how they're distributed throughout this tissue in three-dimensional space. And the other thing that we've been able to do is uh, something called multiplexed imaging. Uh, these, this is work that um, you know, I've done in collaboration with Jake Collotti in our lab, who's uh, an undergraduate student actually. So he, you know, he's really had his hands on a lot of this work as an undergraduate student in our lab. Um, and uh, what we've done with these multiplex imaging platforms is basically, you know, imaging is limited that you can only put about six different markers on a slide if you're really good at it, which we are now, so we can do that. Um, but uh, what we've been able to do is usurp that limitation by eliminating all the color that's on that slide and then putting new colors on it and then staining and imaging it again and then aligning those images and then eliminating the colors, doing another six, aligning them. So you can infinitely just keep putting on more and more and more markers. And why that's important for uh, Bonnie and Denny here who've been in 3IO3 is that there's so many markers in immunology. Like you need, like there's CD4, CD8, CD3, 20, CD19, IgE, IgM, IgG1. There's there's so many, and um, you know we, we haven't had success uh, all the way up to this point yet, but we're getting quite close. But you know one of our targets is to try and put 80 markers on a single slide, um, and we think that that's going to be really informative to understand like the niches that make up certain cells. Like so, you know you have a memory cell, but maybe you have cells around those memory cells that are supporting that memory cell survival. Sounds really cool. Um, yeah, we wanted to change up the pace a little bit and talk about some of your pedagogy and academic experience. Um, how did you, how did your own experience as an undergraduate student at McMaster and your interest in pedagogy change how you approach teaching undergraduate students now? Yeah, uh, good question. Hard question. I like it. <laughs> you, you, go, you go right for the throat. I like that. Um, so I was a student in the Bachelor of Health Science program. And uh, I was actually very lucky to have a close relationship with a number of very incredible mentors in that program. Um, one of my very close mentors is Margaret Secord, who is a uh, you know, big proponent of inquiry-based learning. Um, and another one of my, my mentors was Delsworth Harnish, who is the person who founded the, the HSC program and, you know, had the driving idea behind it. Um, you know, when I had decided midway through my undergraduate degree that I didn't want to be a medical doctor, I didn't want to pursue that path. It just, to me, looked too rote. It looked like not too safe, but I just saw a path for myself where I'd be really bored in, uh, you know, a, a pretty pretty quick. Um, and also, you know, having to deal with patients was not something I would be super excited about, which is weird because I love to deal with students. So I don't know why there's a separation there, but it is weird. Um, and 
one of the things that I had landed on was that, you know, I had always been really interested in teaching. And uh, I remember when I was in my first year, I had actually written uh, a whole chemistry exam for chemistry 1803 um, for other students in my program, like other students in chemistry 1803. So I wrote a whole bunch of questions. It was like a two hour exam and I gave it to all the students. And then I held like an exam review period afterwards and, and stuff like that. And we went over things and they pointed out problems like mistakes that I had made. And that really helped me learn. But what ended up being very foundational for me was that uh, I actually got to do a couple of research program, uh, projects with Del Harnish and PK Rangachari, uh, looking at um, basically what students want in learning and then what um, the professors think students want in learning. And it was embarrassing, straight embarrassing. The professors had frankly no idea what the students wanted. Students wanted to be creative and wanted their evaluations to not examine themselves, but be learning opportunities as well. Students wanted to engage with ideas and talk about things and, and be at the cutting edge. Students didn't want to really be writing multiple choice questionnaires or you know, they didn't see the same value as the instructors did in, you know, rigorous, I got to give you an A and I got to give you a C type education. And that was not, you know, it, it wasn't a surprise to me because I was a student and I, you know, didn't want that either. You know, there's this vision of going to university and engaging with ideas and, you know, molding your interpretation of the world. And I didn't find that sitting in a lecture theater really did that for me in a sense. It was really in discussion. So what happened was I became a peer tutor in my fourth year, which uh, put me in an inquiry class. So I was able to go and you know learn a little bit about inquiry. And I kind of went, you know, this stuff is pretty cool. I like this a lot. And I started to read. I started to read a lot of really important pedagogical literature. So um, you know, if you want to be a better lifelong learner, and I'm not talking about better at reading textbooks, I'm talking better at the true fundaments of learning and being a lifelong learning human being. I would read the book, uh, Teaching as a Subversive Activity by uh, Postman and Weingartner. Um, this book kind of is written in the 1960s. It's really scary uh, because if you read the preface, it lists a whole bunch of problems that they say need to be solved in the next 20 years. And literally only one of them has kind of been solved. So, you know, the rest of them are all problems that still exist today. Um, and, you know, they really dug into the educational system as one of the problems of that, of, you know, people not being put into boxes, people not being able to think freely and be creative. And, you know, uh, it really resonated with me because this, you know, the idea of breaking down these really strict regimented learning things and being able to learn more collectively to identify your learning opportunities to engage with those types of learning environments was, 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 was a really interesting idea as somebody who's really self-motivated with lots of ADHD and really wants to go and do things and, and then do everything all at the same time. Um, you know, it, it was something that appealed to me. And then I also looked at a number of people that I really respect, like people like Noam Chomsky, who are incredible, incredible thinkers. And Noam Chomsky went to a Dewey school. He didn't go through the regular school system. A Dewey school is a, uh, an inquiry-based school that doesn't 
you know, have these stupid classes. Like I'm going to do English now. It's just kind of like, hey, learn. And then the person goes, oh, okay. And then learns with, you know, a facilitator who, who guides them. Um, so what happened from there was that I TA'd for a couple of years and was put in this position where I was like, I am just kind of a cog in this big machine of didactic pedagogy of telling people things and forcing them to write exams. Like I was a laboratory TA for anatomy and I was a, you know, like a TA for these, you know, very didactic style courses. Uh, and then, you know, another great mentor of mine, Dr. Martin Stanfield, who's not at McMaster anymore. Uh, I kind of went to him and I was like, I'm bored of this. I think I can do better. Um, I want to make a course. I want to design an immunology course. And he went, well, interestingly, I've been thinking of trying to put immunology in the summers. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe there's a, a thing, something we can do here. So, you know, I designed the whole course. I designed all the pieces of it. I was like, okay, so students are going to write assignments. They're going to, you know, just be very eclectic. They're going to pick something that they want to study and they're going to go and they're going to study the immunology of it. And then, you know, Dr. Stanley put his own pieces into it and we kind of worked it into an idea. And it was really Martin, uh, Dr. Stanley, pardon me, who, who drove, um, you know, my kind of career in this way where he, um, you know, really went to bat with me with the Dean or for me with the Dean of the Bachelor of Health Science uh, program and said, you know, I want this guy to be an instructor. I don't want this guy to be a TA in this course. And so I was allowed to co-instruct with, with Dr. Stanfley for the first iteration of the course. And naturally, Dr. Stanfley goes on sabbatical to China the next year. <laughs> so um, they go, what's going to happen to this course? And I said, I can do it. I, I, I can do this. I think I can do this. It went very well the first year. I think the students liked it. We got good evaluations. So let me do it on my own. And they went, okay, sure. And the, I, I imagine their thought process was this guy, okay. Um, and my evaluations came back really good again and the students loved the course again. And then I was able to platform that into teaching some inquiry courses. My long time you know, connection with my good friend and, and, and my mentor, uh, Margaret Secord allowed me to move into teaching inquiry. So I teach inquiry courses. Um, and then, you know, through a number of different ways, I got involved in teaching uh, Health Site 2K03, which is an inquiry-based cell biology course. So that's all of my teaching was around these, you know, different pedagogical ideas of not lecturing really to students. And then, you know, I'm starting to move up in the university now and, and you know, I finished my PhD and, and you know, I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, you know, uh, establish myself a little bit more here. And um, you know, they needed someone to teach the bigger immunology course, 3IO3. And I had been teaching the summer immunology course for five years at this point. And so, I, you know, I actually taught more than 20 courses during my PhD. And, um, you know, I, th this opportunity was brought to me by Dr. Stacey Ritz. And I kind of went, well, 400 is a lot of people. Um, I've, I've, you know, biggest classes I've had before, 75 in summer three IO3 in the COVID years, that's all. And so I went, okay, uh, well, you know, I don't know how this is gonna go. So here's what I'll do is uh, I'm gonna do it. I want to do it because I, I, I think that, you know, I think I can, and I think that, you know, um, this is a great opportunity for me. This is a great opportunity that I can, you know, fill a need. 
Um, but if I'm going to do this, you know, I don't want to go in and start changing everything because I don't know what it takes to teach 400 people. Um, and secondly, I went, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to do it my way. So then I came up with some ideas of how to make the lectures less lectury and less like putting people back into rooms and being a part of the didactic cog of the machine. And so I came up with this idea where, you know, at the time I was watching a lot of, you know, science YouTube knowledge translators. And I was like, well, what if I just made my videos like clickbait and just talked like a YouTuber at the, the generation of YouTube, the people who do this, you know, and that's what I did. And I guess you can tell the rest of McMaster and MRSA whether or not that's worked. It definitely has. It definitely oh. has uh, piqued my interest in immunology. Um, <laughs> and Science YouTube is definitely uh, is definitely a great way to show that there is room for creativity in uh, scientific research. So it like they just mix art with with science and they make it really accessible. It's it's great. Um, yeah, that's actually you've actually touched on something that that, that is really, I think, important, which is we've done a great job in the university of separating the humanities and science. And if you yep. take that literally, you've taken science and removed the humanity from it. Yeah. And that sounds scary. And it is scary. It is. It is scary. So, you know, I'm actually, my, my, my wife is an artist uh, and, you know, is a, is a pretty darn good one at that. And I've always had a proclivity towards art. You know, I, I was a figure skater in my youth and, and um, you know, then have, you know, been on stage and musicals here at Mac. You can go and find that one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think, I think that re-injecting our humanity as learners into spaces of learning, like you are a person first and a learner second. If I say to you an idea, you don't immediately rationalize that idea. What you do is you feel that idea first. If I say to you, you know, 10% of people have a food allergy, you go, that's sad. Oh, that's a lot of people. You know, you don't go, ah, yes, 10%, one in 10. Well, is there, you know, you, know you, you, you don't rationalize that idea first. Your first response is emotional, which means that everything that you learn, everything you do has a lens on it. The university says, no, no, you cannot have bad days. You have one MSAF, things like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think that um, I think that also with scientific research, a lot of it is done to improve humanity. So a lot of it is done with humans in mind. Uh, so taking that away is really unfortunate. Uh, we wanted to kind of turn back and um, and talk more about the roles of undergraduates in your lab. So uh, kind of what you look for when undergraduates apply to your lab, when they send you that cold email, uh, what, what kind of things are you looking for? What kind of skills and experience? Um, hmm. I have to think about this one a little bit. Take your time. You know, I've, I've only, you know, just more recently been really deeply involved in the hiring processes of our lab. It, it's one of the things that I'm going to be doing a lot more, at, you know, as time goes on. Um, and, it's, and it's a question I've asked myself a lot. Uh, and the answer is that I hire, you know, I, we, Dr. Jordana and I in, in our lab, we hire people. We don't hire CVs. 
We don't hire transcripts. What I don't like seeing is people who have a lot of volunteer opportunities on their CVs, a lot of different engagements. Why don't I like that? Um, I don't like that for two reasons. Volunteering is uh, white privilege at work. Volunteering is a bunch of people who can not be paid to go and work at a whole lot of different places, and they don't have to worry about that because of privileges that they've been placed in their life. I think it also speaks to a character of an individual who wants to engage shallowly in a lot of places to look like they've done a lot of things. And I think that's damaging to communities. And I think it's something that, um, you know, the medical institution needs to really start looking inwards about. And there are some conversations, but not enough conversations because medical school values filling up a, um, your big long list that doesn't have an end number of things in, in your, I've never applied to medical school, your personal sketch or whatever those things are called. Um, and, and that's damaging to communities. That's bad. You know, I personally would love to see someone who um, has, you know, been engaged with something like Marissa for four straight years, or who has a few things that they've done in their life, that they can talk about what that has done for them as a community. Um, and, you know, I really want to see a real drive and passion for the work that we do, because I can tell you after a six-year-long PhD that this job will take more than you ever thought you could give it, and it will run you down. And if at the end of the day, you can't have the enthusiasm that I've been able to show today in saying, these are things that we don't know, and if that is not enough for you, then this job will, will make you miserable. And it doesn't matter if you're an undergraduate student or a graduate student or a postdoc or an investigator. You know, there has to be a love for it and there has to be a real interest in it. And I really don't think that people should be looking for laboratory spaces as things to put on their CV to apply to other schools, which is one of the reasons that we are quite staunch about really not accepting too many people who have a, an interest in going to medical school because, you know, the research that we do is time intensive. We use money from very generous donors and from um, you know, government or organizations who have given us money to do these things. And you, know, you have to be there, you have to be in it. You have to be ready to do it. So um, you know, I think that if you're somebody who wants to engage with undergraduate research, I think that you really should first ask yourself, well, why? Why do I want to engage in undergraduate research? And then, after that, when you've decided, I do want to engage in undergraduate research, I think that that's a good thing to do. I think that that's, I think that's something I'm driven towards. Go and start reading papers and then understand exactly what it is, what you've done today, which is tell me the language that I use to explain the immune system. And take that and convey that to the person that you're applying to. And then when you look at it from my perspective, it's so easy to see people who are genuine versus not. I really liked your paper entitled Tissue Perturbations and Innate Immunity. No, you didn't read that paper. You went to PubMed and looked for that paper and then wrote it in. And I'm not, like, I mean, I respond to all the emails, but I'm probably not gonna be too interested in what you're doing. But if you go, hey, you know, I read three, four of your papers, your primary research papers, not your reviews. And, you know, what I'm really interested in is understanding 
why this? Why does this happen? What's going on here? You know, the more detailed question or the thing that you can do, the better. And hey, man, uh, you know, I've had a couple students do this to me in the past. Call me out, like right in the thing, like, hey, you know, I don't think this experiment uh, came to the conclusion that you think, you know, don't be a jerk about it, but be like, hey, you know, like, is it possible that this is another explanation for the data that you're seeing? Why would this not be true? Did you prove this hypothesis negative in, in, in a sense? Those are the types of things, you know, among the inundation of applications that we get that I think really stand out. So that's what I mean when I say we hire people. We're not really hiring CVs. I really hope that all the undergrads actually listen to the end till the end and listen to every part because it's it's been a, an honor having you here. Um, and we really appreciate your insight on the roles of like type two immunity, food allergies, and you explaining your undergraduate experience. It's really been insightful.